Welcome back to the Narrative Monopoly podcast. On today's episode, we have vice president at Founders Fund and author slash creator of Pirate Wires, Mike Solana. Really excited for this one. Without further ado, let's press play. Mike Solana, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I've been trying to get you on for a while. You're one of the first people I had on my list, and uh, I think the audience is going to be really excited to hear this one um, and wait for the the Friday drop. So um, thanks for coming on. The first thing that we got to ask is the Hereticon update. That's what the people want to (laughs) know. What's going on with Hereticon? Um, we're doing it. We're doing it in October. It's going to be, we're going to keep it just small invite only. Um, I'm kind of, I've decided to pivot slightly. Like I don't, I don't want it to be a paid thing. So we're just going to cover the cost of rooms and things. I think it's like COVID just happened and I just want to have like a fun, more of like a fun party vibe than anything else. There's going to be content. It's going to be, you know, hundreds of really crazy, interesting people in a haunted hotel. Um, but, uh, why, why, yeah, haunted? like, Oh, well, why not haunted? It's, well, it's New Orleans. Are you asking like how it got haunted or, or why should it be haunted? No, like why, why you pick the venue of a, of a haunted hotel? I think the haunted is sort of like the entire aesthetic of New Orleans, New Orleans. So I guess, uh, for me, it just feels, um, you know, I'm being sort of like, I'm joking around with the haunted thing, right? But like the, the vibe of New Orleans is dark and like, you know, haunted house vibes. It's a sinking city. It's an old city. It's a forbidden, like forbidden things happen there. It's a city of debauchery. Um, it's also not a city of industry. There's not a lot going on there in, in, in like the world of tech. So it's slightly removed. And I wanted to do something in a place that inspired people to be, um, a little bit dangerous and uh that that was the, yeah it was the genesis of it really i mean i just love that city also personally and i was there and i that's when i conceived of hereticon um and so it just was that it was the that was the fit for me it is such a funky city and it does have this crazy history behind it right between andrew jackson uh and then you fast forward like a hundred years and i don't know how much is reality with the jfk movie with oliver stone but I like to believe that a lot of it's real because it seems really cool. Um, and you're right. It doesn't, it doesn't have much industry and it's always a good time down there. Uh, is that a founders fund production or is that uh, a Mike Solana production? Yeah, it's a founders fund thing. And for those people who are listening and maybe who have no idea what Hereticon is, Hereticon is a conference. Uh, you know, I, I framed it originally last October before, um, before COVID, the, the uh, so this was like October 2019 as a conference for people banned from other conferences, which a lot of people took literally and they were immediately like, so you're hosting a conference for people who are dangerous and like they're, it's going to be unsafe. It's like, no, God damn it. Like, can we just have fun here, please? Um, it's a conference for people who really, I, I, the best way I can describe it is like, you're in, if you're, you're in this, let's say the field of biology and you're an expert in biology, you, there are these like bio conferences. 
Um, but you have some weird idea that pisses a lot of people off in the bio community, you're not going to get to speak at that conference. So I wanted to build a conference for the people who are not invited to other conferences, experts in their fields who are not invited to the expert conferences because they are bucking consensus thought in some dimensions. So, you know, early on, it was like, I wanted to do stuff about uh, you know, genetic modification and all the biohacker stuff. I wanted to do UFO stuff. I wanted to do parapsychology. Um, I wanted to do uh, not so much on politics, but certainly media. Um, we had a bunch of crazy roboticist guys and gun people and sex workers and drag queens. Um, and also a few like faith-based things, just, just like weird people who have weird ideas that track into sort of um, the realm of the culturally forbidden and especially in their own communities. So some of this stuff you might not clock is necessarily, uh, you know, crime think for broad culture, but like if you're a medical in, in, in medical science and someone's talking about a full body transplant, that is like, you cannot talk about that without it's, it's seen as dangerous, insane. Um, and I'm just like, I think let's talk about it. Sounds fucking cool. I want to hear all about it. Um, so we have a guy or we had a guy last time coming, I got to reach back out to him. Um, who's working on towards one day being able to do a full body transplant. So to put someone else's head on someone else's body, um, just crazy stuff. Right? So I'm going to be and, able to play in the NBA. Yeah. Well, give it a minute. Um, and I, th I think it's like, probably broadly the problem that we're facing it feels certainly over the last few years that it has just become almost impossible to talk about things that you sense and we all have this sense of what is forbidden and what's not um it's just harder yeah it's just like there's not a lot we can talk about anymore people are, are scared to share their opinions online and like why wouldn't they be i mean people are losing their jobs for sharing the wrong opinions so um, I just thought like, let's just throw a kind of circus for all the things you're not supposed to say. And I'm so tired of this conversation of like free speech. It's like, yeah, free speech is important, but also we do still have it. We're throwing a conference, not for you to talk about free speech, but for you, you to actually exercise it. Like say the thing, just say it. I want to hear the thing that you're scared to share. This is a safe space for people who don't like safe spaces. Just go for it. Um, and yeah, it's a founders fun thing. Um, they let me get away with a lot there. So, and for people who don't know, uh, you were vice president at, at Founders Fund. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll give the intro off the top when I when I uh, bookend this thing. But I, I think it's so interesting that you talk about that because when most people think about this, and what I honestly, you know, talk about the most in terms of the narrative monopoly, it is the higher level uh conversation that's going on going on day to day but what you're talking about is more so in different niche fields um specifically medicine technology and to me it seems like those are the places where we should have the most open conversations because especially with science like the whole point of science is at least what i learned when uh i was in you know sixth grade was like you need to test the hypotheses like that's the whole point and you come up with them and you, you, you test them in, in the, with the scientific method. Um, but if some things are off limits because of some sort of like social mores, I think that slows down progress, right? Yeah, and, 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 and yes, true, all true. And in the, and in the like world of science in particular, I mean, things have just gotten really out of control, not just among scientists, but also broadly across culture with just like this whole quote, believe science bullshit. That is the least scientific thing you can possibly say. 
Like no real scientist thinks that you should just believe them. That's not what science is. Science also isn't science. The scientific method doesn't exist to prove anything either. It's like it's effective at disproving things. I mean, everything is a theory, right? Like you, you, science is science at its best is, is a world where like everyone's a little bit suspicious of everything. And they're always testing, always, always, always just testing and retesting and retesting. Um, and that's how you kind of learn about the world or how you do, you know, in the, in how you're supposed to in the world of science. Um, so yeah, the belief science thing, I mean, it's just, it's like so clearly a group thinky dogma and I can't even believe we've tracked into this path. It's embarrassing. How do you think we got here? Specifically to the science piece or, or the no speech piece will get narrowed down for me. With what you're trying to solve with Hereticon, right? You're bringing specific people in specific fields. I mean, the, the, free speech piece is a little bit more obvious in terms of like the politics and stuff. But when you're talking about science um, and some of those different fields in, in technology that you're talking about, how did that happen? Hmm. I don't know. Uh, I mean, people have group think is a thing that exists and has existed forever. It's like superhuman um, persecuting people for the wrong ideas is like very much a part of the human condition. It is very much a part of our history. I think maybe it feels so much more intense now than it did in the '90s, for example. Um, which, by the way, the, the the sort of late '80s, early '90s had its own swell of like crazy woke speech policing. It just never made its way to culture broadly. Like it didn't it didn't penetrate in the way that this round of speech policing has. Um, and sort of dogmatic thinking. Um, dogmatic. I would say like it's like a secular faith is what it feels like. Um, and we've had faiths before that have police speech, uh, when, you know, America was super, super Christian. I mean, famously the, the witch trials in Salem, right? Like that was Christian, uh, sort of cultural authoritarianism. We don't really have much of that anymore. I think probably the rise of secularism, the collapse of faith, the collapse of, um, I would say nationalism in America, there's like no more common narrative that people have. Uh, is sort of one piece of this. Another piece is the internet. I don't think that humans are built. We're not hardwired to be surrounded every day by people who just fundamentally disagree with us about things. And it's grating. It's really, I think there's a natural impulse in small groups of people to find some kind of, you know, agree to disagree, or even just like some, you want to come, you want things to be copacetic. So you're in a group of 10 people and most of you kind of don't care. Two people really disagree. Conversation will exist in such a way, like you're trying to get to a place of balance. And I think that's possible in a group of 10 people in a world of hundreds of millions of people all online, all yelling at each other. It's literally impossible. There's no way to do it. And I think the feeling of not being at some like sort of center ever there's never some like peaceful thing that we all agree on that that sensation drives us crazy because we it, it was probably like an evolutionary uh, adaptation to to come to agreement in small groups of people so so we have this drive to do it to just come to some kind of agreement and when you can't it's uncomfortable so i think a lot of people are uncomfortable and that discomfort is making some people crazy um and then probably the third thing is just fear there's like a general lack of courage so a lot of people see crazy shit going on and, and won't talk about it, um, won't stand up to it, hope that it just goes away. That's been the, I think that's been the case in tech for years, just this kind of hope that it's like, okay, that person's crazy, but it'll probably go away if we just ignore it. It's like, no, that person now runs your HR department and they're hiring other crazy people. And now half your staff is crazy. Like, good luck. Um, 
so yeah, th th maybe those three things, uh, just like the collapse of other sort of structures of collective belief and or collective identity uh, to the internet three, um, just like a lack of courage. Well, you mentioned the 90s. One thing that I've kind of noticed, I had this conversation the other day with someone, is there seems to be way less anti-authoritarianism uh, in the popular culture right now. When you think about the popular bands of all the way up to the early 2000s with like Green Day or like Sum 41, Blink-182, and then you go back a generation, you talk about uh, NWA or like The Clash, and then obviously in the 60s, like my favorite band is The Doors. Um, it seems like there has been a pullback of people who are willing to challenge, uh, challenge kind of like the popular narratives. And maybe, maybe that, I, I just see it manifesting in culture that way. And I wonder if that's downstream. Have you noticed that at all? Like in, in culture or any? Yeah. Well, I think that what's happened is the counterculture won. And so now we, like our dominant culture is pretty leftist and pretty sort of like, I mean, it has the aesthetic of anti-establishment, even though it's the establishment that's that dominates our entire culture. Uh, it's like a cultural monopoly. Um, and so that it, it makes it confusing. Like, how are you, what is it? What does it look like to be the counterculture um, within a counterculture that is one? Like, what is, what is that? Are you right wing now? No, one, that's not what I consider myself to be, but people do consider me to be super, super right wing just because I am like, disagreeing with some of the crazy like fringe leftist ideas um that's just because people don't know we it's like we're in uncharted territory uh i think i mean i i can't think i mean i i could go and do a little googling i don't my sense is no, there's I, not been a moment when the left has had this much cultural power before it's like super concentrated no i i mean i certainly agree with that and you you touched on courage i mean i, I think that you were talking about this actually in one of your uh, pirate waves Club, clubhouse rooms was, you know, people have to have the courage to stand up to these things in day-to-day -day life, but it's super hard when you do see people losing their job and you don't yeah, have my suggestion, security. My suggestion is always not to do it if you don't think that you're safe. Like, I don't think founders should be jumping in and talking about their political opinions. Um, I think they should stay as far away from this stuff as they can. Uh, they should support people who are standing up, like it's even quietly, just like behind the scenes. I think that's really healthy. Um, they themselves should build up networks of people they can trust to sort of share their views. And um, I think they should incorporate their views about the world and what is right and wrong into their hiring practices. Uh, like certainly like, and even, you know, like in some engineer at Stripe or whatever, like it's not worth if, if you, if, I mean, Stripe's not one of the worst ones, but let's say an engineer at Google, right? Like run for the hills. Like do not be talking about your crazy opinions online. Like just don't do it. It's not, it's not safe. But if you, if it is safe for you, if you think that you're not going to get fired, like I'm, I don't ever want to advise someone to stand up and like shout to the rooftops, their weird opinion, if it's going to get them fired. And I, I know that's possible. I think that fear is legitimate and also a little bit overstated right now. I think it's not quite as dangerous as we think it is. And so I think the practice of like walking up to the line and maybe winking at the line uh, is something that you can do. I think you can, you know, you can fave a tweet. That's fine. I think you there, can. There's, think, a, yeah, there's a lot of people you see on Twitter that kind of like kick the tires that, you know, that yeah. in, in their private conversations, what they're saying is like two to three X yep. <laughs> what they're saying on publicly. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's a good point. 
I mean, I have plenty of friends in my sort of group chats, my signal group chats who are, so one in particular is like, you would have no idea. I mean, he's just very quiet about his views online. Um, and then there's this whole crazy world beneath the surface that I get to be steeped in every single day. Um, I think a lot of people are like that. And I think that's probably the, the hidden truth of this whole, so like everyone who's in charge of sort of, it's like cultural gatekeepers, like that's all dominated by a single monoculture. But what's interesting about the internet, and so this is like kind of the other side of all of this, is that the internet has, I think, made a lot of this worse, but also in a sense, it's easier to access people with different ideas than it's ever been before. Like, I think the cultural gatekeepers have never been in lockstep to this degree before, but also our ability to circumvent them is the best, is, is it, we have the greatest ability to do that than, we, than we've ever had. Um, it just, it's like better and better. I mean, I have no problem being heard myself personally. And I think a lot of us are kind of meeting each other and, and, uh, and the counter message is um, popular. I think a lot of people are, are kind of tired of the cultural, uh, tired of the monoculture. They want, they want something else. They're curious about it, different way of, of looking at things. I agree. I, I think that, you know, the reason why I named this the narrative monopoly is because I, I do still think there is a monopoly on narratives. Like you have an audience of, I think while well, it's looking up, it's like 40,000 people on Twitter, right? Like that, that's a lot of people. It's more than probably the average journalist. Um, and it's not just journalism that is uh, in the narrative monopoly, but as you can see, like these narratives are, are so overpowering still to this day that I think what happens is that it's not necessarily like pushed back on by these uh, smaller communities that are developing that have audience. It's more so that you just get fractured counter narratives. Like there's not one big counter narrative that push, pushes back. It's like True. all of these different ones. Yeah, this is my biggest problem with the kind of like anti-woke people is they don't represent anything themselves. And it's not a strong position to just be criticizing something all the time. Um, I would say in my work, I'm trying to sort of forward my own views on things in addition to sort of the critique. Um, but there's no consensus on that at all. There's not a counterculture. There's no, there's not yet, I, in my opinion, there's not yet a really interesting counterculture. It's like there are lots of people resisting the dominant monoculture, but yeah, there's no like cohesive, coherent other thing. And um, it's a huge problem. We need something else, something positive, but also critical of the other crazy stuff. I totally agree. And so let's, let's get into some of your essays. Um, you're a great writer. Uh, I think everyone, everyone agrees with that. The, the first, actually, the first time I heard of you was when I found your essay, What We Believe In. Oh, and my capitalism one. One of the originals. Wow. You've been in there from the ground floor. Yeah. OG, OG. Uh, I think that, you know, it, it really moved me because I have always been, I've never been a fan of the way that the two parties squabble. I've never been a fan of really either party. Obviously, like one stands for more things that I believe in, but that's not necessarily saying that I love it. I, in fact, I kind of hate both parties. And the reason is, is because they're never able to actually articulate principles and it's always just the day-to-day -day squabbling. And this essay does such a good job of articulating like why capitalism is a good thing, which should be just an accepted truth, but it's not. And, and 
because it's not, therefore, you know, people have to argue for it. And my mental framework for things, for any idea is to split things into principle and practice, right? Like what, it, how, how is it in principle? And then how, what's the outcome once you put it into practice? And I think this essay does a great job of, of arguing for both. And so I want to read one, one piece of it here. For sure. Thanks. If you are fighting for individual freedom in any corner of, the, of this globe, you are by extension fighting for capitalism because there cannot be freedom without capitalism. Individual freedom has illuminated our human existence. There has never been a force for good in this world as powerful or as important. Considering the painting that moved you to tears, the co- or consider the painting that moved you to tears, the composition that catalyzed your philosophical awakening, the computer, lightning in a bottle. Behind every work of genius is a free mind, a single man or woman who laid their hands to the world and shaped it into something new. But today, capitalism is at risk, and with it, the progressive potential of the human race. Yeah, I mean th- that's what I believe in. I think that um, I think that capitalism for me is like oxygen, and it's uh, it's interesting. The word capitalism is actually a pejorative. It was I think coined by Marx. I'd have to go back and check this out. Um, but it, it was really what we're talking about is the free market. And that was, uh, you know, turned around and it was like, it's capitalism. And what they're really saying with that word is like, you only care about money. At this point, the word is just like so popular that I, I'm not, I'm like, I, I, it's been this for hundreds of years. I, I, I don't see a way that we're going to like <laughs> stop using the word capitalism. So you have to just embrace it. Um, but what it is, you know, what we're talking about is freedom. It's the freedom to do something like, and that, I think it's not possible to exist to build anything in this world without without some measure of freedom, um, certainly the problem I would say, like I almost want to move away from, you know, the definition of what capitalism is and why it's important, and get into like why it's at risk. I think the reason it's at risk is because it also it, it people want to project all these things onto it that are negative, and it's like actually capitalism is nothing. It's the absence of force. That's what capitalism is. Capitalism occurs naturally. It's like you're on a desert island with five other people. You're going to start trading shit. That's just like, that is the way it's going to work. If you're reasonably free, a free market will 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 uh, emerge just naturally. It's just like the nature of people, I think. Um, but socialism, and there are all sorts of other things like socialism, but socialism is one of many prescriptions for force. Um, so it, it is like actually like a top-down uh, method for doing things in a very precise way. Um, you know, you're monopolizing the means of production, namely. Um, and then to do that, you have to have people in power to manage everything. Um, that becomes your entrenched power class. And it's, it's just like very different, uh, than capitalism and that it is something. So it's something, it's, it's also a moral philosophy. So it's a, it, it is a prescription for force. It's a moral philosophy and it's an identity. Um, that's, those are three really powerful things in a world without religion. This is a very good replacement for it. Um, it's, it's a good replacement for nationalism. It's a good replacement for religion. Um, and uh, I think capitalism can't win. Like without, you need a lot of things for capitalism is one, it is one very important part of human civilization, but it doesn't defend itself. Like uh, you need other stuff. You need a uh, love of your country and your family. You need, uh, I think probably another faith, something to compete against the, the, the faith that socialism is, is providing. Um, 
you need uh, you need courage. Like you need to be able to stand up for for what you believe in. Like it's just yeah, it's not enough. I'm worried about. I'm I'm very worried about the free market right now. Um, I don't see many young people even understanding it, let alone defending it. And long-term, you know, we've never had a Bernie Sanders type person this popular in America before, um, or an Ocasio-Cortez. The internet itself is naturally a pretty, or social media is a pretty populist medium of communication, which I think is, I mean, even Donald Trump in some sense was like pretty problematic for the free market and freedom broadly. They're, it's like, they're weirdly the same. I see them as like very close, um, all of these different characters. This is, Martin Gurry, first first guest on this podcast. This is his idea of the center and the border, mm. where the border constantly attacking uh, the center of anyone who has authority. But to sum up, before we we go on to that, to sum up, I mean, it sounds like your your definition of capitalism, which there is only one, it's not really yours, but it is the freedom to produce and then keep what you produce. Yeah, the free market is just the absence of force. So for me, that's the freest market is we're talking about anarchy. Um, and I'm not suggesting we should have anarchy, but like no, that you, is, you said we need all the other things too. Yeah, society. it's like you need a lot of different things there, right? To keep it all kind of, you want like a, we don't need to get too lost in the weeds here. But yes, my, my version of, uh, not my version, I think what capitalism is, is the absence of force on the market. So it is uh, what you see is just like in the naturally, in a sufficiently free society, what you see is um, you, a market naturally emerges and people are able to trade with each other unencumbered by anyone else. Um, they own, it's, it's property rights are essential. So it's not really anarchy, right? Like you need a system of laws to, to guarantee property rights, and in a world where property rights are guaranteed, then you can have uh, you can have a free market. Now, I will say that, like in a world without guaranteed property rights, you still have a kind of free market. It's just maybe not everybody honors it. Like it's it's anarchy, so it's it's like your impulse is to the human impulse is like that's mine. Get away from my shit. It's just that in a world with no law protecting that right. Um, you know, people are going to get abused naturally. Just there's there are always bad actors. Um, so yeah, well, freedom to, well, you, I, to, to your stuff and freedom to trade and to associate with other people. Yeah, I think that we saw how thin the veneer of society is this summer, last summer, when it was almost lawless overnight. Yeah, and a lot of people just thought that could that just couldn't happen, and it makes you. At least it makes me appreciate what what we built in terms of. It was not only lawless, right? Like it was so much worse than lawlessness. The problem with what happened over the summer was um, we were told that what was happening was good, that the sort of obvious collapse of civil society in cities. I mean, I was living in San Francisco like when that happened, which had some of the the rioting in San Francisco was it existed. It was not nearly as bad as what happened in, for example, Los Angeles. Um, or Portland, uh, but downtown was gutted. The mall was gutted. It was, there were cops standing there. there were, I've watched hours of footage because I was, because I just hate myself and I need to like subject myself to these things that drive me insane. Um, I watched people just loot every single store downtown while cops stood by and watched because they were ordered to. And, uh, and then, you know, you flip to CNN and there's like a burning building and a man standing before it saying, these are mostly peaceful protests. And you're like, this is fucking insane. Like, it, obviously there are, there are serious problems in society that have led us to this point. And there are many things that we need to talk about and, you know, conversations we need to have, but certainly we can all agree that this is at least 
this is bad, that like riots are bad. Like we have to be able to, to be on the same page uh, with something like that. And we couldn't. And for me, that was worse. It was, that was much worse than the riots and the destruction of property was the way that we talked about it. It was the normalization of those things. That's, that is just like really, really, really toxic. I, I wonder if it would have been that way. Um, you know, part of me is like, well, the, the media just hates Trump so much that they had to spin this in any way they could that would hurt him. Like I, I have some hope that if it was at least a, like a Joe Biden presidency, they wouldn't be like riots are good, but I have no idea at this point the, that whatever that tendency is in the monoculture to sort of normalize violence and things, I, I don't get it. It is, all I know is it's dangerous and we need to just be firmly against that kind of thing. Well, the, the screenshot that you're talking about, I, I certainly know which one exactly, where, where the fire was in the background and the mostly peaceful protests, that type of gaslighting is just, I mean, first of all, it is Orwellian, like it is textbook Orwellian. I don't, I mean, the, that's the problem, right? Is they have the distribution and there's so many people that saw that and- I go back and forth. Like I go back and forth on that because yeah, we all saw it, but we also all made fun of it. And that was a really radicalizing moment for a lot of people. People saw that the, the impulse was not to be like, oh, that's true. The impulse was like, holy shit, like you're lying to my face <laughs> in front of a burning building. That's crazy. I can't trust anything you say ever again. And you can just look at the, I mean, the media's approval rating is, you know, ground it's like bottom of the barrel right like i mean it's i don't i don't think it's ever been this bad so clearly you know it's not i don't know like i go back i go back and forth on on how powerful these people are i mean they in, on one sense it feels like they're inescapable i feel like they control sort of like this worldview controls like every single fount of media power on the other like i said earlier it's just it's never been so easy to circumvent the narrative and find other people who are like willing to share video clips and be like, look at these crazy people. They're wrong about everything. Um, yes, I, I, I agree know. with you. I have friends that are solidly independent that over the course of 2020 were just absolutely appalled at the media. Like I'm done. I'm like, this is, this is so obvious uh, what's going on here, but it is, I mean, gel man amnesia. Are you familiar with that? Where, you know, you read a story that you know something about and you go, this is, this is hogwash. And then you read another one and you're like, Oh, well, this must be true. Cause you don't know anything about it. I think that that's a real thing. Um, and so I think that that's where, I think that in a macro level, they, they definitely took a hit, but on the day to day, you kind of forget about it. It's like fool me once shame on you but uh you know i think so and yet you just got to look at those approval ratings right and the trust ratings people don't trust them i think more and more pe people in general like people just trust i think the way that people vote they t they tend to most people don't pay attention to the news they don't want to pay attention to the news they don't pay attention to politics they don't care about it um they usually there's usually like one sort of influencer in your friend group who has all of the political opinions and all of the knowledge and you're like what is up like what do i what is going on and they tell you everything and yeah they're you know you get into little squabbles or stuff but i i don't know i don't know if this is like i don't i don't know if there's any data on this this is what like what i've noticed throughout my life um even when i meet other friend groups and you can usually identify like the, the sort of influencer in the group um and i think that that impulse in the age of social media is now or that maybe tendency in the age of social media is transforming into something else where the people that we trust are these influencers who, um, you know, you follow on Twitter or Substack or Clubhouse or whatever else. Um, 
and that is where you're getting your news and it's 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 like that is good and bad it's good in that it's like it's great to shatter the media monopoly but also um i mean i'm not an i'm not i'm not so blind as to not see the inherent danger in giving someone who might be crazy access to hundreds of millions of people who could love him or her just because they're super charismatic or they say things in a funny way um yeah, there, there are possible dangers. I, I don't, I, I try to like acknowledge that in my writing that I think there are possible dangers in this stuff without harping too much on it because we don't know, we haven't seen it. It's like anytime you have a new phenomena, like there are gonna be negative outliers um, and there's risk always, but it's just unclear. We're, we're talking about a fundamentally new media landscape. So I don't, I don't know what to expect. I just am prepared to, to see some not so great things in addition to a lot of really great things. This was your essay, Jump. Yeah, yes, it was. Uh, it was part of it. So yeah, Jump is really about, um, Jump is not just about really influencers so much as my concern in a super networked world where everybody has access to each other, instantaneous information sharing at the scale of hundreds of millions or even billions of people. That's a kind of network we've never seen before, which means that we have a kind of potential virality that we've never seen before. So a single piece of information could travel around the world and make us all want to act in some way, maybe even immediately that um, in aggregate, like at a small scale of like 20 people or hundred people or 10,000 people that could be damaging, but at the scale of a billion, what happens when a billion people are told something that makes them temporarily insane, like, like really crazy for even just a couple of hours. I don't know what that looks like. Uh, we've seen versions of that all fucking year for two years now. We've seen versions of this. Um, certainly under COVID, we've seen a couple of like really serious versions of this. Everyone knows the cancellation version of this where people all freak out about a false story and like ruin someone's name. I'm less concerned about that than I am with like, what is the thing that could happen that we're not We've never seen before, right? The thing that yeah, we don't France know. France Ferdinand moment. Yeah, the thing that we don't know, we don't know. What does that look like and how do we react to it? And and none of that would matter as much to me were it not operating at the scale of literally billions of people that we've just never seen that before. So a mistake at that scale, um, some kind of action at that scale could, that's really dangerous. And it's a risk that I think no one is calibrating for. Yeah, I, I think in that essay, you, you said that you were, pretty much against regulating social media, right? In, in, in a broad, like in a general I'm against, sense. I'm against, um, I'm against uh, sort of top-down determining what, quote, truth is. I don't like right. censorship. I don't like moderating for truth. Um, that's what I'm against. So, so my, the thing that worries me, which I think is exactly what you're getting at, are, are the mechanics of it. Because- the way that I see this is that we don't view necessarily other things as technology as we do social media, right? Like, so everyone would say, okay, Twitter is, is technology, but what else is technology? You know, uh, uh, weapons are technology and you cannot go out and buy uh, a nuclear bomb, which has, I mean, what, what, what we're really talking about is leverage, right? Like a weapon gives you leverage as a human being to create more damage than you could. And so that's what I think we're talking about when, one piece, one tweet could go viral to a billion people and have real world consequences. That That's where I want to see some sort of, and obviously, you know, like in terms of free speech, like I'm an absolutist, you know, exactly. The, the Supreme court has already decided. Um, I think David Sachs is like 
the man to follow on this issue. But in terms of the actual mechanics of these things, that's where I think maybe we could have some sort of regulation to, to solve. Yes. That. Something I've written a lot about and uh, recently uh, someone named Renee DiResta wrote an, a piece of her own about this that I thought was pretty good. So, and I don't know how I feel about this. It's just a different approach to the sort of quote misinformation problem, which I think is overstated, but also potentially long-term pretty damaging. Like there, there are, you know, serious risk potentials there. I think harping on it too much is usually a smokescreen. I think the people who are obsessed with disinformation are actually just obsessed with political censorship, like straight old fashioned, I want people I don't agree with to not be able to talk. So you have to always be super vigilant there and push back whenever you can. But just like conceptually, I don't know, like what about a world where no one had more than a million followers? Like that seems already like a little bit more interesting. Like if no one can have more than a million followers, if, if, if no piece of information uh, across the major social media channels can be shared more than, let's say, I don't know, five or 10,000 times in a single day, um, what does that look like? If you can just slow down the speed of information and if you can slow yes. down, if you can reduce the influence of these massive influencers. Like for me personally, that's going to be long-term damaging because I know that I'm like pretty good at Twitter and I'm only getting better. And I'm like, I know that this is, I'm going to hit that wall Um, eventually. That's like, it's what I do. But like, I don't know that someone like me should have as much influence even that I already have. Like why? I I, like, it's like, I don't know. Like should I have a hundred times more influence than I do now or a thousand? Um, That seems like a lot of power to put in the, hands of one person. However, it's like, it, it, that's a clear violation of the freedom principle for me that with the stuff I'm talking about now, exactly. like I, recognize, yeah. I recognize the conflict there. I just also see an incredible danger. I don't know how to balance it out yet. I do think that, that at, le- at the very least, the concept of like slowing down in the pace of information sharing and of reducing a little bit the influence of like these mega influencers, um, that seems better to me than the concept of truth arbitrate, not better. It's way better than the concept of truth arbitration and, uh, and political censorship. So if I had to choose one, and it seems like we're being forced into this corner, I want to be like throwing out the virality stuff and talking about that more because that's much better. That's like a, that's a, that's a rule that hits everybody um, rather than the political censorship stuff, which will only ever hit um, basically the, the sort of naysayers in a dominant monoculture, namely me and everybody who I like um, is going to be on the other side of that. And uh, like, that's like fucked up. I don't, we're, we're literally just talking about political censorship. So I, I'm not into that. I don't, I don't know that I'm into the virality thing either. It's just like, like I said, I mean, we we're going to need something to offer. And if that's what it is, it is what it is. Meanwhile, we're talking, I mean, increasingly the internet, the trends online are all towards decentralized peer-to-peer information sharing, which you're not going to be able to do that to anyway. Uh, or maybe you could, you could create some kind of protocol that has that baked into it, but that's not what we're not going to see that the first and most dominant protocol is not going to be that. And so we're effectively like all of this, sorry, one second. Um, so effectively, uh, you know, everything that we're talking about right now, like doesn't even matter because in a world where the rules are taken out of the hands of people, we're just gonna, we're going to enter a world of basically social media where censorship doesn't exist and scale is uninhibited or uh, unencumbered. And so what we really need to start thinking about maybe more than anything else um, is like new cultural technology, new, new philosophies for approaching this stuff that we can make more popular. It's like, 
the way that, you know, you're a little kid and before you cross the street, your parents for the first time, they're like, you know, look both ways before you cross. Like these, these kind of like little rules that you like work into someone's mind as like a child. Like we need something like that for navigating misinformation, for navigating um, potentially disinformation, for navigating cultish media personalities. Like this is the future of media. And so we need some new like hygiene, mental hygiene practices for dealing with it. Yeah, I agree. The fr a free market solution is just going to be way more effective than if the government tries to to regulate it, even if it is uh, directionally correct. I think it's interesting that you say that you're getting better at Twitter <laughs> because, you know, I saw somebody selling a course, like how to crush it on Twitter or something like that. And I just thought like, that's so, that's so odd. Like, how do you, you know, crush it? I mean, candidly, I'm horrible at Twitter. Like I just say whatever batshit crazy thing comes into my head. And I know it's not like optimized for vi virality, but I do know like how the game is, is played. It's just so, it's so, it's such an opaque and, and odd concept almost that you're like, you're basically well, typing something into a box and like trying to fit it into a way that it'll, you know, get there, engagement. Yeah. I mean, this is just, I think being good at Twitter to a certain extent is just, it's the question of like how to make a compelling argument that people have asked since the dawn of writing. And a part of that is like emotional sort of sensitivity to the dominant culture, like knowing how people talk about things. Uh, and then some of it's like a sensitivity to the algorithm. Like you have this kind of feeling of when something's going to work or not. And um, I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know exactly. I don't think anyone knows exact. No one knows. No one knows what makes something go viral. And also, by the way, you know, we're, quote, good at Twitter. What does that mean? Does that mean virality or does that mean you have, you know, yeah, exactly. 10, 000, <laughs> 10, 000, or does it mean, or does it mean engagement? Like I think engagement matters more than, uh, than number of followers or, uh, or even like your one off viral tweet. It's better to have like a core audience that really loves your work as a writer, I think. Um, but for me personally, that stuff has been kind of on an upward trend. And I think that has to do it also self-perpetuates once you have a core group, they sort of amplify, like it just gets bigger and bigger. So it's sort of right. like it's out of your, it's out of your hands. Um, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's just like poetry. Um, it sounds weird, but I think it is like sort of like poetry. It's like Twitter is Twitter made poetry happen again. I think everyone's just like, everyone on Twitter is a poet and, uh, and that's, what's rewarded is someone who can say something in a really pithy way with like a rhythm to it that, resonates with them on some emotional level I, I mean i'm obsessed with it i love it i i, 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 I hate am, it uh, and i love it that i think that's that's the exact way to put it right it's like you you i don't even know why i log on but all of a sudden i'm on and i i hate it uh <laughs> but i love it Let, let's shift gears for a second uh speaking of the counterculture i lived in san francisco for a while and a few years ago and i got out because uh i didn't think that it was a, a livable situation uh, but I lived there for a few years. And when I got there, I went to Haight-Ashbury. And... That's where I live. I'm, I, I'm here right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got there and I was wondering, where are all the free spirits? Where, where are all the hippies? Like, where's the uh, kind of like San Francisco that you see in the movies and, and all that stuff? And it just wasn't there. And you have been uh, really really active in trying to fix the city, which I commend you on because it's, it's 
not an easy task. And San Francisco is absolutely a crown jewel of the United States of America. It's probably the, the prettiest city that we have. It's, it's just breathtaking, the architecture, the natural landscape, everything. And it's such a shame what's happened to it. When I was researching you, you know, if you search Mike Solana, one of the things that's suggested on Google is, is mayor. <laughs> so really, uh, that's, I didn't know that. That's wild. It's mayor and billionaire. Those are the two things. <laughs> so, um, nice. Yeah. So, so where has that counterculture gone and, and kind of like, how are you trying to fix the, the situation in San Francisco? So the sixties and seventies, when all the hippies and runaways and everyone else were in San Francisco, that was a turbulent time and also like a dangerous time. It wasn't just, you know, flower power. It was in San Francisco, in Haight-Ashbury. It was wild. Uh, you should read this book called Season of the Witch. It does, it's really a beautiful history of the city, a gripping, like gorgeous portrait of um, what we have been through, first of all. Uh, but all those ideals, like back in the day, it was an actual counterculture. You're talking about resisting a sort of dominant kind of um, socially conservative culture. Um, and our culture is no longer socially conservative. It's very socially liberal, which is, I love a, a liberal social culture, but it's also economically uh, leftist, I would say, rather than liberal and, um, and increasingly uh, authoritarian. And like I was saying earlier, I don't think people know how, I don't think people know what a counterculture looks like in the context of this specific dominant culture it's like a very weird what what should that be like you resist every part of the dominant culture hopefully not because there are some really good parts of the dominant culture um like what do you resist how do you find uh you know the the live the cultural live wire there um so that's the broader problem and you see it in san francisco as well is like this is a city run completely by the craziest possible lefties alive um crazier than any random hippie that you would have found in Haight ashbury back in the day to the left of them too uh, and so why would you need a counterculture? Like it just doesn't exist here. Um, there's just one culture and, uh, it's also really, the real reason probably though, is maybe just, it's so expensive that, you know, interesting, <laughs> creative people, interesting, creative people can't move here. Where are they going to go? They, it's the, this city is a place that is the, the politics of the city has created an environment in which the only people who can actually afford to buy a home here, you're either a millionaire or you're like a drug addict and you're given a place, you don't even own the place, but you're given a place by the city. That's what is, that's, that's housing, that's affordable housing in San Francisco. Um, there's no room for the middle class. There's no room for young people who aren't in, in tech with six figured salaries to come here and make a go of it. It's almost impossible. And uh, that has just culturally killed the place. Do, do you think that it's actually possible to fix a lot of the problems in San Francisco? And for anyone that doesn't know, I mean, it, it basically comes down to there is just rampant crime. It's, it's based, crime is basically legalized. Uh, I mean, there's all these videos of you can go into like just Walgreens and steal stuff and nobody's going to stop you. Home invasions. You're just not these these people are getting caught and then just released the next day. Um, and it's just, it, the, the streets are, are pretty dirty. Uh, there's just open drug use everywhere. I mean, I have a bunch of stories about when I lived in San Francisco, uh, that are, that are pretty wild, but it, it's just a bad, it's just a bad situation. Um, and, and I just don't know how it turns around. I go back and forth any idea? on this as well. I think that anything is possible, but the problem here is, so I think best case scenario um, just quick 
sort of like uh, micro discussion on like the structure of the politics here. So 2022, we have an election. So there are 11 board of supervisors or 11 supervisors on our board of supervisors. And there's the mayor. And that roughly is the power of San Francisco. The board is more powerful, in my opinion, right now. So the board with a supermajority of, of people is more powerful than the mayor. Um, so the mayor can veto legislation the board passes unless they have a supermajority. But in the current environment, which is run by the, the furthest, you know, it's a combination of Marxists and uh, anti-housing activists on the on the board and they control like everything so she's pretty marginalized at the moment you would need to replace most of them 2022 five of them are up for re-election but of those five most are, are, are I think I had to go double check but it's like I think most of them are are considered quote moderate and now that's moderate by San Francisco standards so it's still pretty far left but way better than what we're seeing on the uh, on the furthest left and um, so really, I don't see much change in, by 2022. Um, 2023 is the mayor's re-election. And I think it might also be Chessa Bowden's re-election, our district attorney. So you could make some change there with Chessa, but the mayor is also considered a moderate. I think she's not done a very good job. And I would like to see a stronger mayor in place, just culturally, someone who's willing to sort of stand up and say, this is crazy bullshit and I'm against it. She has not expressed a willingness or capability of that. Um, or capability of doing that. Uh, but really it's gonna be 2024 when you have six of the craziest people who are up for reelection. And, uh, and so realistically we're talking like best possible case scenario, if you swept every election, you could have a competent government by 2024, but you're not gonna do that. There's no machine in place. There are no candidates in place. There's no money in place. Um, it's gonna take I think the most optimistic, re, the most reasonable optimistic take would be like 10 years from now, you might be able to have a competent government. And that's a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. Yeah, it's a long time. Uh, and it, it's really not a Republican Democrat thing. I mean, there's plenty of mm -hmm. cities in the United States that are run great, run by Democrats. Uh, it just so happens that the ones well, these aren't Democrats. Are crazy. <laughs> these, these aren't Democrats. If you criticize them. They're like, that's because you're a Republican, but they're not Democrats. We're talking about like my district supervisor is literally a Marxist. He's in the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. He talks about, he's retweeted things before about nationalizing all industry. Chesa Bowden, um, our district attorney, works for Hugo Chavez. Uh, well, he pushed back in a clubhouse chat with me and swore he didn't. Uh, if you listen close, uh, I guess you can, there's no recording. I think what it comes down to there is a quibble. He actually, I, th I think my sense is that he volunteered for Hugo Chavez, which is like so much fucking worse. What you're saying is like you're a super ideologue and you're obsessed <laughs> with him. He's also written about uh, about Hugo Chavez's dictatorship in in the affirmative. Uh, he's pro it. He's, he's It's in the nation. You can just Google this. Um, so like that's the kind of thing we're dealing with that plus like just like rich NIMBY people who don't want anything to change plus like actual anti-housing activists plus now we have like this woke thing that has infected some of the people so uh, like our, our school board is super infected by just like a crazy sort of regressive racial theory that they're that's, they, they care about that more than anything else so it's like yeah you have just committed ideologues you have uh, selfish people and you have actual crazy people and um and that's what's in charge of San Francisco. I think it's such a shame. I mean, I, I also think it's, it's uh, at least from my point of view, like the culture around how to approach solving these problems. And I'll give you two anecdotes. There's one I heard the mayor, uh, London Breed, in a clubhouse chat talking about someone asked her about housing. Mm. And her answer turned into like a diatribe about 
climate justice. Jesus and Christ. yeah, it's like, it's like, I don't care if you are the biggest climate activist in the world, like the population of San Francisco and building housing there has absolutely no impact on the long-term climate. No, (laughs) there's no, there's zero reason. (laughs) There's zero reason for like a local politician to be talking about climate change. It makes no sense. Like, and if you really want uh, to help improve climate, you want urban density so you can better, you know, improve things like public transit. And it's like, it just, it's nonsense. They're just like completely, they pivot to things they think sound good to the left and because they can't answer the questions that you're asking. Reasonable questions like, hi, why is it illegal to build a house? Like, hey, like, it seems like we have a housing crisis. Why can't we build this like tower of housing? Or, hey, like, why are the schools so bad? P.S. Why don't we have a plan to open them ever again? Um, why is crime effectively legal? Why is someone selling meth in my driveway? Why is that okay? Why is it okay to like walk down the street and then like shit in the middle of the road? Why is that fine? Like no one, they don't have answers to these questions. And so yeah, they'll pivot to fucking global warming. Like it's like, okay, great. Like that doesn't matter in this. That's not what we're talking about. Like focus. I need you to focus. I think the wildest part is any of these local politicians or state politicians that uh, if they just fix the you know if they if they just fix the roads and stuff like that as a a metaphor for this stuff they would probably be even more popular like that's that's the paradox but it goes all the way down so that the second uh the second anecdote i have is you know how like in soma there's the streets that are um i mean they're like alleyways but they're still streets uh like they're 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 really big Mm -hmm. i was crossing one of those one time and it was it was a red light. There's a, also really weird is people don't jaywalk in San Francisco and it freaks me out. Hmm. People like just diligently stand on the corner. Uh, so I, I'm jaywalking and there's no cars around, but there is a homeless guy sticking a needle in his arm, like right next to where I'm, I'm walking. And a cop comes up and he's like, hey, like you're jaywalking. Like you can't do that. <laughs> let me let me see your ID. I'm like, dude, are you, are you fucking kidding me? Like there's, did you see the guy right there doing, you know? Yeah. It's wild. There's this thing where the cops tend not to bother people who they think are going to cause them a problem. And, uh, it's like, I don't even know what to say about that's just crazy. It's, we all know that's crazy. We see that we, everyone, this is, this is the thing, man. It's like, we're living in a city where people are walking around. It's not like most people believe this stuff is okay. We all know that it's crazy, but we're not supposed to say that. And that's the dominant. So you have the national monoculture and the national sort of narrative. Nothing is as bad as what you see in uh, a small city where everybody is supposed to agree on something. Um, And these are like the super crazy places like Portland or San Francisco. Um, increasingly Seattle is really bad. New York is bad, but not nearly as bad as this. There's like a strong, I think no matter how crazy things get in New York, there's always a sort of no bullshit thing there. And it's a big city with um, lots of working class people as well. So it's, it's more balanced. Um, San Francisco is a small, tiny city and uh, there's no room to grow or not allowed. There's plenty of room to grow. You're not allowed to grow. So it's just, it's, it is like, we have internalized this set of rules about like how we're supposed to approach the world and people just accept the craziest things. Like you, you just accept the drugs and you accept the, the, the crime and you accept the sanitation. And it's like, we got to break through that. It's what we're mostly facing more than, than any other problem. It's a problem of um, it's a, it's a cultural problem. 
it's like a, it's a, we have to be able to just, we, we got to start just looking at, at things. And, and I think accurately describing them, we, we have to be, we, we have to be, we have to get to a place where it's okay to do that. Yeah. It gets back to the beginning of the conversation, right. Around, uh, <laughs> around capital T truth. Um, let's, uh, let's, let's close out here with some, some personal questions. What, what does the day in a life of Mike Solana look like? Oh, wow. Um, not so interesting. I just wake up and I make a giant pot of coffee and if it's a writing day, I write for like eight hours. And if it's a work day, I work and that's kind of it, man. I just, I like to work. I love my job and I love to write. And that's kind of where I spend most of my time. And then um, I work out every day and I try and have dinner and drinks with my friends throughout the week, go to the park <laughs> on the weekends. It's like pretty boring. I love my family. I love my friends and I love my job and I'm kind of just focused on those things. I was expecting like a colorful explanation of like just Twitter wars. Like you have like a battle station. Oh, ready and... well, I guess that is truly, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I was expecting time, that was part of it. Twitter is like, that's like patrol. I'm like, it's, it's like patrolling the streets, the mean streets of Twitter, just like nuking bad takes everywhere I go. Yeah, no, online things are much more exciting, but that's like, you know, my internet bodysuit. The real world doesn't look anything like that. Twitter is, you know, it's like we're live action role-playing revolution every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's ideological warfare. It's very exciting. It's why I'm glued to it. And that is, I mean, it's literally just war. It's just, it's, it's, it's poets at war with each other for the future of America. <laughs> and I know how crazy, I know how stupid that sounds, but that is what it is. I'm sorry. I'm, you heard it here first. Uh, but you know, in real life, it's like, we're just inside or outside drinking coffee existing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you think that we've kind of crossed over where the, the like Twitter is a metaverse is like now more important than the outside drinking coffee real world? I think everything, the reason I, you know, talk so much about this stuff, the writing and everything is because I do think that we exist increasingly uh, like large chunks of our lives exist online. And so that sort of ideological stew that we're swimming in does shape us and it does absolutely shape the real world all around us. I think it's more important than anything that happens in the real world because everything that happens in the real world is exists downstream of the culture that's created online. Um, in terms of like what should be the way forward, I think there's nothing more important than connecting with real humans outside in person. I'm a huge proponent of that. I, that's how I've met, you know, all of my best friends. Uh, that's how I've met a lot of my best friends. I've, I've met a lot of really great friends online. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, I think the last 10 years we've really missed that. And it's been a bad, it's been a negative trajectory away from that. We need, I do think we need a, a better balance here. I don't know how we get it. Um, um, I think that, uh, you know, just to go back to politics briefly and not, you know, get into like what I believe or anything, it's just, um, how does it work? Like, why do we have this relentless focus on national politics? It's just like, why are we so obsessed with the presidency and why, you know, are, are people who are so I've talked to people who are obsessed with presidential politics in San Francisco. And I asked them who their 
what they think about their their supervisor what, or what district they're in, because I'm trying to get a sense of who their supervisor even is. And they don't know the answer to that question. And it's like, how do you not know that? This is your this is your home. You live in San Francisco. Do you not care about the laws of the city? Do you not care about you know the governance of the city? Do you not care about the fact that you know transportation is shutting down and education is the schools are closed and you know it is like effectively legal to break into houses? Do you not do you not have an opinion about any of this shit? Like why not? Um, why don't you know? And I think it's because. Uh, We've drifted away from our communities, our physical, in, uh, you know, uh, our physical sort of IRL communities. We're focusing on things like Twitter, which necessarily has to have a much broader scope. That's how pieces of information become popular. Is when the most amount of people can have interest in something. But when you do that, when you weight all of your focus towards the things that the most people will care about, um, you lose sight of the thing that is most important, which is your home. And we've got, I, I don't know, I have no sense whatsoever of how to fix that. I try and work it into my writing as much as I can and get people excited about, you know, voting local and things like this and caring about this kind of thing. But I don't know, I mean, just structurally, our tools are all designed to draw us away from our homes and into this sort of like relentless, national, unwinnable culture war. Um, I think some of that's, you've got to engage with that as, you know, a bit, but, but uh, we do have to find a way to, to walk it back and, and start focusing on our communities again. I mean, that's a really good point. It's the the kind of nationalization of our politics is, is actually kind of a reoccurring theme on, on this podcast. I, and I think that what you're talking about is, is kind of like the delta between the conversation that's being had constantly in the media. And when I say media, I mean all media, like social media um, and all that. It's always nationalized. It's always based on the presidency. But then where are the real decisions being made? And a lot of it is in local communities, whether it's San Francisco or like a state legislature. I mean, I, I'm i personally like crazy. Take mine. I, it's not crazy. It's, it's well thought out. I, I wholeheartedly believe like we should repeal the 17th Amendment, uh, which is direct, direct election of senators. I think that like you should get to know your state legislature, like yeah. because you're actually going to be able to talk to that that guy or gal, and you're going to be able to influence them on like how they how they vote for that person. And yeah, there's a lot I, of things like that. I agree that we need to like right now people just do not structurally. There's not a reason for people to care about things like who the representative is. I think most people don't even realize who it is. A lot of people in San Francisco don't even realize our representative is Nancy Pelosi. That's crazy. She's like one of the most famous ones. And I mean, she's the speaker of the house. Like people have no clue um, that it's just like, yeah, it's really bad. I mean, really, really bad, but you can't blame things like education. I don't think it's fair to blame even parenting on this stuff. I believe that this, we have designed structures, like the actual systems in place have led us to this. And so I don't know necessarily what I think the solution is, but I think the fact that you're raising one, I think that that, that kind of thing that you just suggested is certainly um, the approach. Like we need structural changes to get to, to better solutions. Yeah, I, I, I just get frustrated at when the conversation is just always just so, it's always so in between the, the 240 yard lines. It's never anything. It's, it's always inside the Overton window. And then anything that's like, oh, that's outside the Overton window. It's like, it's usually not. It's, it's usually not. And, and I just think like radical approaches, again, back to the beginning of the conversation, when you talk about stuff in science, like a full body transplant, like, you know, how many people that are, that are crippled, like would, would benefit from that. And you can't even like discuss working on it. And so it's all throughout society. I just, I mean, I, I'm just thirsty for 
<laughs> new open ideas in, in how to fix these things and structurally yeah it's a, it's a big I, I do think that structure has a lot to do with it because it all comes down to incentives mm-hmm. that are downstream of there agree well all right let's uh let's wrap up here with what what is the vision for pirate wires what's the long-term goal of this thing so pirate wires uh was i mean originally i only launched it to i needed like some kind of funding for a podcast I was working on called Problematic. I wanted to build out like a kind of audio network type thing. I liked radio shows. I liked producing Anatomy of Next. I thought I was going to do that. And then on the side, I was like, oh, well, I'll just do like a, you know, quick little newsletter as well. Get back into writing a bit. But I was thinking like very rough. And in the early days, if you go back to the early ones, it really is just like, it's like this happened and then this happened. And it was like just covering the news, like the crazy Twitter shit. And then I just couldn't help but like kind of, turn it into a fun story. Like the, the, like I just would get lost in my own, like I would just, I think a lot of this stuff is just, I think the news is so funny and like fun that I get lost in it. And so I'm, I, I just, they started getting more and more ambitious. And then the newsletters started, they became way more popular than my podcast. Um, it's my personal podcast. So I, and also now also it's, they're more popular than Anatomy of Next even. So I kind of just dropped the podcast, uh, which was called Problematic. And I doubled down on the writing and the vision is like, I really want to turn it into um, a media company. It's interesting because I started my career wanting to be a writer, but I didn't have an audience. And it was like this long path all around, you know, a million different things. And I wound up suddenly now with an audience and I'm writing. And uh, what I would love to do is hire a full-time podcaster who I can do like a pirate wires weekly with. So all I have to do is sit down with them to have a fun conversation for an hour. They do everything else for me. So once a week we have a a sort of voice thing. Um, And then I would love to ultimately hire a few actual journalists who are reporting on a lot of the stuff that I'm editorializing on. Uh, So I'd love to see some like hard reporting at the intersection of science, uh, not science, uh, the intersection of technology and politics. Cause I think there's a lot happening there right now in Washington and is we need way more reporters covering it. It's crazy to me. We just had the tech hearing and like, there were not that many reviews of that in, in, in media because, and I don't think it's for any nefarious reason. I think that there just, there are not a lot of journalists, there are not enough journalists covering this stuff. Um, and certainly among the, the handful of tech journalists who are covering it, most of them are hopelessly anti-tech. So I'd like to see someone actually neutral covering this stuff and just like straight, just the facts reporting, what the hell is going on right now in Washington. Um, but that's a little bit longer term. So short term, just doubling down on my own stuff, my own voice, amplifying my own voice, and then hopefully, you know, generating enough money to hire a couple of journalists. Well, everyone should subscribe if they're listening to this, to, to Pir- Pirate Wires. PirateWires.com. It's, there's a free one. And you just get everything that I write for free the week it's on. And then uh, if you pay, you get sort of all of my, uh, everything that I lock after a couple of weeks. So it's like all my, my whole library plus uh, you get access to the Pirate Waves uh, Clubhouse group. There you go. I and kind of as a closing point here. I mean, I, I totally agree. All of my all of my media consumption is now optimized towards uh, folks like yourself or people who just kind of know what they're talking about. Like the the All In podcast. I don't know if you've listened. Yeah, to that, I do. Yeah. I mean that that is 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 just miles beyond anything that you're going to get from the normal business tech politics coverage of anything in the the mainstream media and it's just all of these um i don't like the term experts but like they are like subject matter experts basically 
it, it's just so helpful and, and, and informative and, and lively compared to what's been traditionally out there. Yeah. I mean, I'm following, I see some tech journalists. There's one in particular is really bad at the New York Times. I mean, there are plenty of great people at the New York Times. This person who will rename, remain nameless is you know you, you are the second person to this to to leave this person nameless on this well podcast. because nobody wants to be accused of harassment by a crazy person um for criticizing their work but it's uh i mean this person's essentially writing fan fiction it's like it's complete nonsense on twitter at least like the things that they say are just not true it is like as if you were sitting down to write literally a piece of fiction in which you are the hero and the people you're writing about are the villains it is banana land insane. So at the very least, you know, yeah, the all in podcast is a great example of three guys. Well, I think, I think, you know, I'm not going to, it's a great podcast and they actually know what they're talking about because of course they do. They're working in the industry that they're talking about. Exactly. And as an audience member, like I just learned so much, you know, I learned more in there in that hour than I do consuming anything else. So all right mike well thanks for coming on uh everyone should go sign up piratewires.com and it'll be out soon thanks for having me